The text for our sermon this morning comes from Hebrews 11, 1 through 3. Hebrews chapter 11, verses 1 to 3. Now, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. For by it the elders obtained a good testimony. By faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God, so that the things which are seen were not made of things which are visible. This time I'd like to call our kids down front for their children's sermon. Nice. Well, the verses that we just read tell us some very important things. First of all, they teach us that what we believe shapes how we live. We read that faith shows that what we are hoping for is real. It's the proof of the things that we cannot see. Secondly, our verses tell us why the Bible has the stories that it does. Like, why does the Bible tell us the stories about Noah and the ark? or about baby Moses, or about Samson killing a lion. These stories are not in the Bible so that we can copy these men. No, they were sinners just like us. The Bible is the word of God, and God is giving these men a good report. And the good report is about their faith. They believed in God even though they couldn't see the things that he had promised to his people. The reason the Bible tells us these stories is so that we can see how sinners can be saved by faith in God. When we read about these men, we find that they committed sins against God, so they aren't in the Bible for us to copy. What we do see in them is that they believed in God's promise to save his people by the death of Jesus. In the last chapter, chapter 10 of Hebrews, we read, the just shall live by faith. This means that faith is how people are made right with God. But how do we know that these people in the Bible stories had faith? Well, our verses tell us that we can see their faith by the things that they did, that they lived according to God's promise. You understand that this does not mean that they worked to earn God's love, but rather because they believed God's word was true, they lived like it. You know, you ask your mom if you can go outside, and she says yes, but remember, it is really cold out. Now, if you believe her, what will you do? Put a coat on, that's right. Now, if you don't put on a coat, what would that mean? Well, that would mean you don't believe her. And that's kind of what our verses are saying. What you believe shapes the way you act. If you see an animal wallowing in mud, would you believe it if someone told you that was a cat? No, you know it's a pig because pigs like to wallow in mud. That's just what they're like. And it's not really believable when you say that you love Jesus and you never want to read the Bible, never want to pray, never want to go to church, never want to go to and learn about God in Sunday school. The people we read about in the Bible, even though they were sinners like us, they believed in God and we know that they did by the things that the Bible tells us about them. The third thing that our verses tell us is that we can't understand the Bible unless we believe God first. Verse 3 says, By faith we understand. See, when a person that doesn't believe in God reads the Bible, even if they can understand the words, they will not understand the meaning because the Bible is about things that they don't know and they don't want to know. If you want to see things, you have to have what? 
eyes. I have to have glasses too, but if you want to hear things, you have to have what? Ears. If you want to smell something, you have to have a nose. If you want to understand the Bible, you have to have faith. And the Bible tells us that God is the one that saves sinners. He saves those that he chooses to save. The Bible says that Jesus died for the sins of those people. And if a person doesn't believe that God made the whole world, they're not going to understand or believe that God saves the sinners that he wants to save. The very first verse of the Bible says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And if a person doesn't believe the first sentence of the Bible, they're not going to believe any of the later ones either. I want you to listen carefully to the rest of the sermon. We will pray, and then you can return to your seats, okay? Oh, Heavenly Father, thy word is perfect, restoring the soul, making wise the simple, and enlightening the eyes of the blind, the power of God unto salvation for everyone that believes. We, however, are by nature blind and incapable of doing anything good, and thou wilt relieve only those who have a broken and contrite heart and who revere thy word. We entreat thee that thou wouldst illumine our darkened minds with thy Holy Spirit and give us a humble heart, free from all haughtiness and carnal wisdom, in order that we, hearing thy word, may rightly understand it and regulate our lives accordingly. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. The New Testament epistles always have two features. They have the central message of the letter, and they have the purpose, what scholars call the occasion of the epistle. What we mean is that there was an issue that occasioned the writing of the epistle. And these two things are intimately connected, as you can well imagine. The central theme of Hebrews is the superiority of Christ over the institutions of the Old Testament. And this gets argued in two ways, as we've seen. The first is to show the inherent greatness of Jesus' personality. That's why Paul quotes so many passages from the Psalms testifying that Jesus is God. Thy throne, O God, Psalm 45, 6. It doesn't get much more direct than that. The second is to show that the institutions of the Old Testament were patterned after Christ. He's the original and they're just copies. They testified to him until he came. Now, the occasion of Hebrews was the live danger of apostasy, specifically the apostasy of returning to the now fulfilled institutions of the Old Testament. In Hebrews 6, Paul goes so far as to say that this would be like crucifying Jesus afresh. In other words, it's essentially defending the killing of Jesus. Dangers like this are back of the warning from the text last Sunday, the threat of falling into the hands of the living God, the God who claims vengeance as his prerogative and who is a consuming fire. Now this combination of theme and purpose is our star of Bethlehem, so to speak. Everything that we read in this epistle must be read in that light, which brings us to our text this morning. And our outline will follow the text. Number one, the demonstration of faith, that's verse 1. Number 2, justification by faith, and that's verse 2. And thirdly, the content of faith, from verse 3. The demonstration of faith, verse 1, let's read it. Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Now we know the rule about context, right? To rightly understand it, you need the larger context. These statements are inferences directly drawn 
from 10.38, the quotation from Habakkuk 2.4. Habakkuk 2.4 is one of the classic passages, the quintessential texts of the Reformation. Martin Luther struggled intensely with Paul's doctrine in Romans and Galatians until he grasped the Holy Spirit's application of this passage from Habakkuk. The just shall live by faith means that a man is justified in the sight of God by way of faith, and it is in this faith that he can live unto God. Now we talked about context. Context isn't just what's come before, but also what comes after. And after the verses of our text, Paul's going to give us a long list of Old Testament saints who were justified by faith. These saints and their lives are held up to us as examples of how faith gives substance to its hopes and proves what can't be seen. The early 12th century Anglo-Saxon theologian Hugh of St. Victor described the distinction between hope and faith this way. By faith alone we are sure of eternal things that they are, but by hope we are confident that we shall have them. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. This is saying that the saving faith of Habakkuk 2.4 is a faith which gives a face to its hope. Faith exemplifies the hope of the possessor. The Greek word rendered substance in our text is the word hypostasis. That is the standard word in all of our creeds to render, uh, that's rendered person when we're speaking of the three persons of the Trinity. That word, hypostasis, literally means to stand under. That's why the English word is substance. The classical Greek word was used in reference to masks that stage actors wore for playing multiple characters. They stood under the mask to be the person they were playing in that scene. This word, hypostasis, is also used in Hebrews 1.3, where we read that Christ is the very image of God. In Jesus, God's existence is substantiated. And I, so I, I can't stress how significant it is that the Holy Spirit chose to use this word in Hebrews 11.1, 1, considering how it's used in 1.3. Since God's revelation deals with spiritual and invisible things, Faith is the faculty needed because it is the evidence of things not seen. By faith, we venture our eternal interests on the bare word of God, and it's entirely reasonable to do so. Nothing is more foolish than to doubt God. So our text is saying that faith substantiates the things hoped for. It puts a face on our hopes. Saving faith isn't merely a mental exercise. Oh, I believe that such and such... Uh, things are historical facts. The tenor of a man's life gives substance to what he actually believes. The true character of his profession is proven by the overall tenor of his life. Our texts for the past couple of weeks have taught us that we have the high privilege of entering the most holy place made without hands by the blood of Christ he has opened to us a new and living way. We have the privilege that far surpasses anything possessed by the high priests of old. Because this privilege is spiritual in nature, it will not be understood by a carnally-minded man. He won't even be able to recognize its existence. 
The man whose faith is caught up in externals, who wants to come to God through external ceremonies, through his own works, through elaborate rituals and earthly priests, this man will never appreciate what Christ has done. Not only will he not appreciate it, he will actively despise, oppose, and hate it. He will trample it underfoot. You say to him, here's the active and passive obedience of Christ. Here's his perfect righteousness. Here's his once-for-all atoning sacrifice. And he says, hey, look what I can do. This is the apostasy that this epistle is constantly warning against. The point of Hebrews 11.1, 1, coming after the quote of Habakkuk 2.4, and after a long dissuasive argument against apostasy, is that faith demonstrates itself. It gives substance to its hopes by grasping the promises of God. This is what the Old Testament saints listed in this chapter did. Look, faith is not something you can see, right? Being invisible, faith is only known by its fruits. Faith substantiates your claim to have it. It proves its reality. Our text links faith with its living qualities. Faith represents things which are but yet in hope and sets, as it were, before our eyes things that are invisible. An apple tree doesn't have to be threatened or coaxed into bearing apples. That's just what it does by nature. None of you have ever gone into your fields with a bullwhip and threatened your corn. You better produce some ears if you know what's good for you. So all we're saying is that the fruit of our lives shows what we really are. If a tree produces buckeyes, argue all you want. It's not an apple tree. Its nature is demonstrated by its fruit. A man can possess, uh, profess faith in Christ, but if his life never bears what our catechism calls the fruit of thankfulness, then we can know that this profession is not genuine. If he never makes use of this privilege of free access to the presence of God through Christ, if he takes refuge in his own works, if he doesn't hold fast his confession, if he forsakes the assembly, well, our text tells us plainly that his profession of faith isn't real because it's bearing its natural fruit, the fruit of apostasy. You may remember the dog returning to its vomit or the pig returning to the mud when we preached through 2 Peter. The point of these analogies is not that it's bad for dogs or pigs to do this, but rather that that's just what dogs and pigs by nature do. You can dress a pig or a dog up in a wool coat. You can put it out to graze with the sheep, but the dog is going to eat its vomit. The pig is going to jump in the mud. That's their nature. Dressing them up like sheep doesn't change their nature. A tree or an animal demonstrates what its nature is by its fruit. Peach trees don't produce onions. They produce peaches. Pigs don't constantly preen themselves. They wallow in mud. That's their nature. When we see trust in Christ's righteousness substantiated, confidence in God's word demonstrated, then we're seeing the natural fruit of faith. If we see boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Christ, drawing near with a true heart, holding fast to the confession of hope, stirring up one another to love and good works, devotion to public worship, we are seeing a just man living by faith. And if we see drawing back, then we're seeing apostasy. And that brings us to our second point, justification by faith. Verse 2 says, For by it, faith, the elders obtained a good testimony. You see, that's why we labored so much over the doctrine affirmed in Hebrews 10, 
36 through 11.1. It's important to have this doctrine firmly in place to understand why these Old Testament saints are marshaled in. There's a specific purpose for bringing them up. I mean, look, if I wanted to preach about upright living, I would hardly bring Samson in as my example. But that isn't why these Old Testament saints are mentioned here. They're mentioned for one purpose, to show how faith alone justified them and how their lives were defined by their holding fast their confession. Whatever else we may have to say about their personal lives, it is clear that their confidence in God's word governed their lives. Otherwise, they wouldn't have done the things that Scripture records of them doing. None of these men were justified by their works. They were all justified by faith alone, apart from their works. Their lives demonstrated that their profession of faith was authentic, and this is the good testimony that they have in Scripture. Scripture doesn't hide their faults. Scripture never glosses over their gross lapses into sin. Their personal lives are not the reason that they're held up for us as examples. Christ's life is the only one Scripture holds up to us as a pattern. Scripture doesn't gloss over these men's sinfulness, and neither should we. It's not their personal lives that are our example, but their faith in God, which was proven to be real by the things recorded in Scripture about them. And in every example listed, we are going to find the two things stated in verse 1. We're going to find, A, their hopes were substantiated by their holding fast their confession, and B, proof that they believed God's word over their own senses. Their lives proved that they believed things that could not be seen with physical eyes. The Old Testament saints were justified by faith, just as we are. That was the purpose of quoting Habakkuk 2.4. Their faith substantiated what they hoped for. It gave evidence to their belief in things not seen. We know that they believed what they professed to believe because none of them drew back into perdition, but they all persevered to the saving of the soul. Scripture gives us this testimony to the elders. George Junkin writes, God is their witness, and the things which he testifies to their praise are, in general, very different from those which human historians, for the most part, write in commendation of the great ones of the earth. Blessed is the man in whose favor the Lord bears witness, and not infrequently such receive only reproaches from the world, for friendship of the world is enmity toward God. Now, we can get ahead of ourselves easily here and start taking up some of the examples, but let's rather take a bird's eye view and see that what is affirmed about every single one of these Old Testament saints is that they held to the word of God even when there was no visible proof of what he had promised. None of them had ever seen what they were hoping for. They had no history to look back on and say, oh, it's one of those. I get it. They trusted in the word of God above their very own senses, and they endured in this faith to the end of their lives. Had any of them pulled a, pulled a demons and left the service of God because they loved this present world, we wouldn't be reading about them here. And that leads us to our third point, the content of faith. Verse 3 by faith, we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God, so that the things which are seen were not made of things which are visible. The faith of the Old Testament saints, portrayed in the rest of this chapter, was not some generic, undefined faith in God, belief in God. Christian faith is not some generic belief in Jesus. There is actual content 
which must be believed. Question 21 of our catechism asks, what is true faith? Answer, true faith is not only a certain knowledge whereby I hold for truth all that God has revealed to us in his word, but also an assured confidence which the Holy Ghost works by the gospel in my heart, that not only to others, but to me also, remission of sin, everlasting righteousness, and salvation are freely given by God, merely of grace, only for the sake of Christ's merits. Over and over, we have been reminded that Jesus is the true substance of all that the Old Testament institutions typified. They were merely the shadows he cast. Depending on the position of the light, all you may see is the shadow and not the thing itself. But the shadows tell you that something is there, and it gives you some idea of what it looks like. These Old Testament saints were justified by faith in Christ. They knew and believed that whatever they were called upon by God to do, it was in service of this great end. They were serving Christ, though he had not yet been revealed. In the shadows, they saw the unseen, and they held fast their confidence and did not draw back to perdition. Had they drawn back, we would have evidence, proof, that they didn't actually believe God. We would have a demonstration that they did not have saving faith. These Old Testament saints not only held for truth what God had revealed in his word, but they lived according to this revealed truth with confidence that all the promises of the gospel were not just generic promises, but personal ones. And the Holy Ghost worked this faith in their hearts by the preaching of the gospel. The gospel was proclaimed, as we have noted many times, through the sacrifices and ceremonies of the law. Every time a lamb was sacrificed on God's altar, Jesus was being preached. We looked at this a couple of weeks ago. Jesus said, if you believe Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. Paul says, I stand saying no other things than those which the prophets and Moses said would come, that Christ should suffer. In Hebrews, we see that the sacrificial system is what Jesus and Paul were referring to. Sacrifice is the most conspicuous feature of the books of Moses. Every time Moses speaks of sin offerings, he is speaking of Christ. This is what was believed by the saints of the Old Testament that Paul lists here in Hebrews 11. Their trust in God's promises, their belief in the thing yet unseen was given substance and was proven to be real, by their holding fast to their confession. We know that they hoped in the promise of God because their lives exemplified this hope. So you see that verse 3 is not simply affirming that God created all things of nothing. It's not saying less than that, but it is saying a lot more. At the bare minimum, it is saying what Hebrews 1.20 does, namely, that God has given us, through the whole framework of this world, clear evidence of his eternal wisdom and power, so much so that disbelief in God as creator is a damnable sin. So let's ask the question, how did this world come into existence? And let any man answer that question who does not draw his information from scripture and what wild theories and speculations abound. There's an old saying, an undevout astronomer is mad. This world is full of such madmen. They would not retain God in their knowledge, and so he gave them up to a reprobate mind, to the folly of naturalism, materialism, and secular humanism. On the contrary, 
The simple believer who looks up in the night sky and by God's grace says, my father made all this. This is the man who truly beholds the beauty and glory of the skies because the eyes of his faith have pierced through the realm of nature to the glory of heaven. He sees something greater than can be seen by any telescope. Only the believer can understand God's revelation. There's a qualitative difference between someone who was born blind and someone who lost their sight. The person who lost his sight will retain visual memories. He'll never be able to see a sunset again, but he can still remember what it looks like. The person who was born blind will not only have no visual mem memories of anything, he won't be able to form visual mental images of anything. You won't be able to explain to him color, shape, proportion, or any other visual data. The faculty of sight is what is needed to understand those things. And since this person possesses neither the organ of sight nor the capacity to process this data, he will never be able to understand what a sighted person knows instinctively. Now, that person may be able to amass a great deal of theoretical knowledge, but he still hasn't seen the world that he lives in, and he won't be a reliable source of information about it for that very reason. The unregenerate, having their understanding darkened, have never rightly seen the world because of the destructive effects of sin on the mind. And here's where that analogy of the person born blind actually falls very short. The one fact that gives meaning to everything, that explains the existence of everything, and against which everything must be understood, the existence of God, that's the one thing our sinful nature obscures. We suppress this truth in unrighteousness. And therefore, it's not an overstatement to say that the unregenerate person has never seen the world rightly. He will never be capable of it or even desirous of doing so. Faith in God's promise to save his people from their sins by the death of Christ begins with faith in God as the creator of the world. Our catechism says faith begins by holding for truth all that God has revealed to us in his word. It's more than that, obviously, but it isn't less. True biblical faith begins with the assumption that God only and always speaks truth. Every single word of scripture is absolute proof. Truth. If I place my reason above anything recorded in Scripture, then my faith is not saving faith. How could it be? How could it be confidence that remission of sin, everlasting righteousness, and salvation are freely given to me of God, merely of grace, only for Christ's merits, if I don't really believe that God created all things exactly the way Genesis asserts? In the same way that the Old Testament saints saw Christ with the eyes of faith, we see God's creative power with the eyes of faith. You know, faith is often likened to a leap in the dark where one just clenches his teeth and believes something despite all the evidence to the contrary. That's not what our text is saying. Faith is not the assurance of the non-existent. It's the assurance of the unseen. Every place in Scripture where faith is taught, it is always presented as confidence in the character of God. The church father, Augustine, used to say that faith precedes understanding. He interpreted Isaiah 7-9 to mean that unless you believe, you will not understand. Our text says as much. By faith, we understand. 
Now, I know that that sounds like circular reasoning, but I'm convinced that it's true and that the circularity is neither preventable nor problematic. Truth is objective. You can't keep appealing to higher authorities forever. Adding more cars to a train does not account for movement. To move, that train needs an engine. Fact is fact. Saying that one must have faith in God's character before he can understand God's works, I don't find that circularity to be an argument against God, nor an indictment of God's truth. At some point, we run up against ultimate reality by which all things must be measured. Faith begins with the truth of God and builds a life upon what God has said. In the most basic sense, our text is affirming that the life of faith is one in which God in Christ is the most basic, fundamental reality. Now let's close with a serious question. Amid the storms of life, what support does your faith give your soul? Can it keep you stable before the storm? Is your faith able to ensure your entrance into a now unseen eternal haven? Is it now within you as a substantial reality of a hoped-for heaven? Does it quell all your doubts and prove indisputably that you have an eternal home in heaven? And if not, what good is it? Let us pray.